0: Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. I think you all, when you came in, should have received an index card. Uh, I want you to pull that out. I'm going to have you interact with something here uh, very briefly. You're not going to turn this in, this is just for you. Um, but I, here's what I'd like you to do, and we can put a slide up here with the questions. Uh, the first question is I, I want you to write down who are my enemies on one side? Who are your enemies? Again, you're not turning this in, so I want you to be honest. When you think of your enemies, who is that? Write that down. There may be one, there may be 50. I don't know, maybe they don't fit on your card. I want you to write them down. And then, uh, as you write that down, the second question is, I want you to think through the teaching on the other side. On the flip side where you get a chance to write down what sort of questions or thoughts insights do you have from the teaching because at the end what we're going to do is have an opportunity to interact as we've done from time to time to allow you to speak yes I want you to talk and we're going to interact where are you connecting some dots where are you noticing this story that we're going to look at in your own life making sense or maybe it doesn't make sense and there's confusion So again, who are your enemies? And on the other side, I want you to write throughout uh, of the time uh, your thoughts on this. So just as uh, by way of review, in, in the last gathering, we kicked off our series on the book of Jonah. And I know our house churches, if you were in house church, you read the book of Jonah together. We're going to continue to do that in our house churches as well. Uh, we're hearing great feedback from you all. I love the emails and the texts. And even a, f- a few people this morning pulled me aside and said, Hey, I noticed this in Jonah I'd never seen before. Have you thought about that? So I love the way we as a church are wrestling with this idea of, store, of, of the story of Jonah. Now remember... Jonah, as we said in our gathering two weeks ago, Jonah is not a story about a great big fish. It is a story about Jonah and a great big God. And that's the important thing that we want to make sure runs through the entire teaching when we're together. And again, the greatest irony, and the book is filled with irony, is that everyone and everything in the whole book of Jonah changes except one, and that's Jonah himself. Now, on a few different occasions in the Gospels, Jesus talks about Jonah. Have you noticed that? If you've read the words of Jesus, Jesus on occasion refers to the story of Jonah. What's that all about? Why in the world is Jesus caring about Jonah so much? Well, there are several parallels I want to make sure you keep in the forefront of your minds as we think about this story that we're looking at. Jonah was a prophet from a few miles away from Nazareth. Uh, I don't know if you know of anybody else who was a prophet from the town of Nazareth. Uh, He was on a boat, a storm, he's sleeping, and because of his actions, it calms the storm down. Jonah thought he was dead in the pit, in the depths, but three days later, his life was restored and brought back again, and great things happened. When Jesus went down into the water, he comes back out during his baptism, and it says it's like a dove descended upon him. What does Jonah mean? Dove, right? There's all these parallels and connections that we need to see here. When Jesus is asked about a sign, they said, give us a sign. And he said, you already have a sign. It's the sign of Jonah. In many ways, Jesus is actually living out the story of Jonah again, but in a bigger and more redemptive way. So again, chapter 1, the review. Jonah, from the beginning of the story, he gets a word from God. Uh, He goes to Nineveh, uh, and, and God says, I want you to preach against it. He says, no. He boards a ship for Tarshish, which as we just heard about, uh, as in southern Spain. A great storm comes. The pagan sailors repent. They trust God. Jonah remains stubborn, and he says, throw me overboard. This is what I deserve. He's thrown overboard. The sea is calmed, and the great fish, not a whale, the great fish swallows him, and God says to the great fish, swallow, don't chew, and the fish is obedient. Okay, Lord, and notice the irony, even the great fish is obedient. Now, with that as the review of chapter 1, I want to encourage you with your Bibles out. Uh, We're going to look at Jonah chapters 2 and 3. They're short enough. We're going to look at both of them. And uh, as we turn to Jonah chapter 2, I've asked Leah Brecker if she would come and she would read uh, Jonah 2 for us.
1: Jonah 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, and deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. You, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I vowed I will make good. I will make salvation. Comes from the Lord, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land.
0: Now some of you might be thinking, are you asking me to believe that a human being was swallowed by a fish and didn't just survive a few hours, but survived for three days and then was vomited back out and was still alive. Are you asking me to believe that JR? Or you may be even saying, well, what if Jonah is just a parable? What if the story never actually happened? What if it's just a really good story like the parables that Jesus tells? All right? And we could spend hours talking about those two questions, but the point of it isn't to simply say, is it possible Because it is. That's the point of miracles. Things that happen the way they're not supposed to. Supposed to. But there have been recorded occasions where people have actually been swallowed by whale sharks. They cut them open and they're still alive. They're all white and pruny and disgusting and have gunk all over them, but they're still alive. But the goal isn't simply to say, see, look, it happened, it's possible. It's to say, if God is in charge and miracles happen the way the world is not supposed to happen, there's no reason for us to believe this couldn't happen. But for those of you who still struggle with that, there's still something for you to receive in this story. I don't want you to write off the story if you in the place that you're at simply can't accept that there's a human being that could be swallowed and for three days uh, comes out alive again. I believe it happened. I think, I, I think that's fair to, for us to believe that. But if you don't believe it, don't write off the next several minutes because there's still uh, things for you and I to receive from this story. Now, show of hands, how many of you, if you were trapped in a large fish for three days, might be slightly claustrophobic by this? Okay, yeah. Uh, Some of us already struggle with claustrophobia, uh, so I just can't even imagine uh, what that might be like. And he tells us that uh, as he's praying, he says that being in the pit was like a living hell. mean, he says that from the depths of the grave, some of your Bibles may say sheol, which is another word for hell. It literally was hell for me to be in this, and I don't doubt that for a moment uh, in that. Cramped, tired, hungry, helpless, sleep-deprived, fearful, dehydrated, desperate, maybe going in and out of consciousness, probably about to give up and ready to die. You know, people attempting to survive storms in the middle of the ocean, um, you know, sometimes we see in movies, they're washed up onto shore, right? They can't even, like, lift their heads. They're so exhausted. There's no reason to believe that The storm happened that that it got calm as soon as jonah hit the water could have happened over a period of time but the struggle how exhausted how disgusting would that be to be wrestling through a storm to finally survive and all of a sudden you end up in your in the inner guts of this huge fish so he's in the guts of this huge fish and chapter two is almost the entire chapter is jonah's prayer when you read this prayer, it almost sounds like a psalm. Did you catch that? As Leah was reading, you're like, that kind of sounds like a psalm. Well, here's the deal. Every element, every line of Jonah's prayer comes from the psalms. I mean, look at these uh, artist rendition here, but we're not going to go through all of these, but you can see each of those lines, he's actually referring to multiple psalms. Jonah knew his Bible. Jonah knew the psalms. And this is what's coming out of him in his moment. This brutally honest and gutsy prayer. This is what comes out of him. I mean, this imaginative language. Seaweed wrapped around my head, he says. It seems as though Jonah is actually repentant and contrite. And you may be saying, but look, he changed, right? I mean, look at him. You said everybody changed in the book of Jonah, but Jonah, did not that sounds like a pretty good prayer to me. I mean, look at verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit God's love for them. But let me ask you this, is Jonah talking about himself, or is he still talking about Nineveh? Guess what? He's still talking about Nineveh. If that were his own spirit, that's different. But he's saying, those idiots still don't get it. And we sit here and think, that idiot still doesn't get it. Jonah is pointing out Nineveh's idols while ignoring his own in the most vulnerable moment of his entire life. You see, we all have idols. We're, we're not immune to idols. We're not different than Jonah. Now let's back up here. What are idols? Let's be really clear. What are idols? Idols are anything in which we make, t- make worth or value into, and it becomes more important than God in his view of us. The church father, St. Augustine, he had a great view of idols. This is what it says. He said, an idol is anything that we worship that should be used and anything we use that should be worshipped. Pretty good definition. It's, It's a good thing that we actually make the ultimate thing. They aren't necessarily bad things. They're good things that we give too much priority to. And idols, as some of us have known, will eventually and always, if given enough time, disappoint us as humans, we all worship something, as we looked at uh, a few weeks ago. It's just a matter of what or who we are worshiping and is it worthy of our worship or not. They can be tangible things. They can have dollar amounts attached to them. They can be surrounded by white picket fences and have a monthly mortgage. They can have a nice coat of paint on them and four new tires. It can be sleeping in the crib in the next room over. The idol can uh, have produced multiple albums or films. Idols can have well-endowed breasts. Idols can be in the form of a, of a position or a title at work or something we want to attain to in our field or our industry. So what is Jonah's idol? Jonah's idol is the most dangerous idol of all. It's the idol of religion. See, the good news is, is that Jonah was amazing at religion. And the bad news is, is that God wants nothing to do with it. The dangerous thing about religion is that we can be religious without ever actually having to deal with God. That's why it's so scary and so dangerous and so subtle. Sometimes the safest place for us to hide from God is actually in a church. There are thousands of ways of being religious without us ever having to submit to the Lordship of Jesus. In verse nine, he says, "But I, with shouts of careful praise or grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed, I will make good, and I will say salvation comes from the Lord." This is the climax of his entire prayer. In fact, this is the climax of the entire book. If you have a Bible, uh, a print Bible, I want you to circle it, underline it, put a star by it. That is actually the thesis statement of the entire book Salvation comes from the Lord. And so I have to pause right here and I have to ask a very important question of all of us, me included Do you believe the red? Do you actually believe that? And if not, what keeps us from being able to believe that salvation comes from the Lord? And then verse 10, this dramatic rescue happens. On the third day, a great fish vomited. I love that Leah emphasized vomited, right? Isn't it fun to have vomit in a sermon, you know? Vomited Jonah onto dry land. I mean, it sounds like middle schoolers, right? Poop and farts and vomits, right? I mean, this is like straight out of middle school, you know? I don't know about you. um, I, I, I can change any diaper. When our kids were little, I could change any diaper. But there was something about when our kids would throw up, I just could not handle it. <laughs> I just I mean I I had some people that gave me even like a gas mask and like these gloves and like I mean when, when Megan wasn't around again I could when our boys were little I could change any diaper. But my goodness, and and the the ironic thing is, is that that Carter had a very has a very sensitive stomach. So smells can set him off, and like little tastes here and there can set him off. So as a kid, he'd just throw up like all the time. And so then it was always this thing when he'd throw up when Megan was gone. It was like, do I leave it there on the floor for three hours, or do I enter into my own purgatory here because? I will be cleaning up two piles of vomit in just a moment. And I just, I don't know what it was. I just vomited every time I had to clean up vomit. And I just I love asking that question, which is worse, vomiting or cleaning up someone's vomit? Well, for me, it's two, you know? And so I just, when I, when I hear this story, fortunately, I don't throw up, but like Jonah, I just want you to feel the story because VBS has hijacked this from the reality of what's actually happening. Okay? Jonah is covered in fish vomit. I would be vomiting, okay? Many times if this were me. Jonah does not end up on the shore as a victorious prophet wearing glory, he ends up a ridiculous prophet wearing vomit. Shrimp, shrimp cocktail and tuna tartar just rotting fish and exhausted and pathetic on the shore. This is not the kind of messenger of God that any of us would have in mind, All right? Now, we know that. We're going to lean into chapter 3 now. So keep your Bible open, and Aubrey's going to, Aubrey Dahm is going to come up and read Jonah chapter 3.
2: Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very great city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation the king issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the kings and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up all their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened.
0: So the story gets even more intense there. The word of the Lord comes... Uh, To Jonah a second time and I'm just I, I, I get chills when I think about this idea of this God who's patient enough to give us second chances who after all of this says Jonah I've got still have something for you I still can use you you haven't been disqualified yet and I still want to be able to use you if you're willing to be used God is giving Jonah this second chance this painstakingly patient God uses even his own messengers who are slow to get it now that i've got your attention god says i want you to go to that city that great city of nineveh and proclaim the message that i've given to you and jonah arrives in nineveh obedient and again you may be thinking wait i thought you said he didn't change he actually changed he changes mind. he did it isn't he where he should be But his attitude of arrogant obedience, of angry, condescending obedience, is just as vile as the previous chapter of his deliberate disobedience. In the last gathering, we saw him and his adamant disobedience, but now we see this angry, arrogant obedience. And both times, Jonah fails. Resentful, angry, And arrogant obedience is not what pleases God. And oftentimes, doing the right thing the wrong way with the wrong motives becomes the wrong thing. He says, I'll be obedient to God. I'll tell those people to repent. Then, when they don't, I'll watch God burn the place to the ground and I'll enjoy doing it. I'll enjoy watching that because these people don't deserve God's grace. I know it, God knows it, and I'd love to watch that destruction. Sure, bring it on. I'll tell them. And the the writer tells us, again, how great and how big Nineveh was, that it takes three days for a person to walk from one end of Nineveh to the other shows just how huge this city was in the ancient world. Three straight days of walking from one end to the other. 120,000 people in this capital of Assyria. And this is his message in verse 4 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. I wonder if Jonah had this smug look on his face, this condescending tone in his voice, and a watchful eye to see these pagans reject the message of God, something that would have given him such great pleasure. Saying, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. And he's just waiting for the apathy. It takes three days, remember, to walk across the entire city. Jonah's on day one. And Jonah's worst nightmare comes true. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. Four little words that were so scandalous to Jonah. This is not the way it was supposed to go when he went to Nineveh. This is not how he planned it. They come to believe in God. He's not even halfway through the city and they're repenting. This is like first ballot introduction into the Evangelist Hall of Fame status, okay? You've said eight words. There's no hope in those words. You don't even want to give those words. And the entire city comes to faith in God. That's Evangelist First Ballot Hall of Fame stuff. And he hates it. The largest mass conversion of Gentiles the world had ever seen up to that point, and Jonah doesn't want anything to do with it. it says they declared a fast, the greatest from the least. Put on sackcloth. Again, sackcloth is this ancient symbol of mourning and confession and repentance and showing yourself and others how contrite you are. And oftentimes it would be accompanied by putting ashes on your head. The point is that I'm lowering myself to the lowest possible thing I could put on my body. I'm putting ash on me, which is disgusting and revile, and, and it shows just the depths of my level of feeling sorry. Even the king does it. The king put, puts on sackcloth, and he sits in the dust, and he issues an edict, calling everyone to repentance. I mean, this is like dream stuff in terms of cultural change. We pray for leaders to, to do something like this. It happens, and Jonah doesn't want anything to do with it. In verse 8, I mean, and this is both hilarious and ironic. Again, one of the themes of the book. Look at verse 8. It says, even the cattle wear sackcloth. That's hilarious. There are people that are saying, hey, here's a bunch of sacks. I want you to go out and I want you to drape them all over the cows. The cows are wearing sackcloth. This is utter repentance through the entire culture of this city. Think of the obedience, the sailors, the fish, the worms, the people of Nineveh, and now the cows And even though it's hilarious that there's there's a bigger understanding of the message of the gospel, that God's desire isn't just to save souls, it's to redeem all of creation. And if you'll notice, cows and cattle are mentioned multiple times in these 48 verses of the book of Jonah. God's heart is bigger than just for people. It's for all of creation to be redeemed from the garden all the way to the end of Revelation is a desire for creation to be redeemed back to the God who made it. The king's, the king's edict, the irony of this verse in verse 9 of chapter 3, where he says, Who knows? Maybe God, yet, uh, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. The king understands the heart of God way more than Jonah. Who knows? Maybe God will change his mind. Maybe he'll actually relent in this situation. And yet, more irony, it is in Jonah's failure that God uses to bring all of them to faith. Some of you say, God could never use me. Do you know how little I can do? Do you know my background? Do you know what I've been involved in? There's no way. If God can use Jonah when he doesn't even want to be used, I think God can use you if you want to be used. So Jonah is a representation of Israel, too, of the nation of Israel. Think about it. The people of Israel were called out by God to be different, to be a conduit of redemption to the world. God reveals himself in a special way, but Israel was unable to have the humility to share it with other people. They thought it was just, they thought it was just for them because of their prideful hearts. And Israel is judged because of it, just like Jonah. He suffers consequences. Israel suffered consequences when they weren't taking God's message seriously. But God's love is great even for Israel because he would renew and redeem them in their judgment again, just like Jonah. Now, for us as a church, we need to see the parallels between Israel and us. Again, we talked about Scripture being a mirror for us, right? Right? We are the people of God. We are God's special people, called into life, called to call other people into life. And when we're prideful and we're stubborn and we think God is only good enough for us and that God couldn't possibly love fill in the blank, then we've missed the entire point of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. If at any moment I think, well, God must love me a little bit more. I'm sure this is just for me and my people. We've missed the whole point, and we become Jonah. Everyone is wearing sackcloth in the whole city, including animals, except one man, the man of God. Grace is amazing, but it can be scandalous to the, entire, to the entitled and the spiritually arrogant. And that's why Jonah can't stand it, because he's entitled. He's believing that God should have just special treatment for him. The VIP seats are reserved for people like Jonah in his mind. And God then becomes scandalously gracious in that situation. Now, we don't have time to unpack it totally here, but you will in your house church this week. But in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells a story that I can't get out of my mind because I see so many parallels between Jonah and what Jesus says in this parable. It's the parable of the vineyard workers. He says that when God is understood properly, it's like a landowner who goes out early in the morning to hire day laborers in his vineyard at 9 a.m. he passes the marketplace he sees some people doing nothing he hires a a man and uh, he agrees to pay him one denarius for his workday. that's the uh, fair equivalent of one day of work and he does the same thing at noon and at 3 p.m. he goes back to the marketplace and says I need more hired hands can you come come on and they agree to pay them a fair wage at the end of the day and he does the same thing at 5 p.m. going back to the marketplace right before quitting time he hires someone else when the day is done, he gathers all the laborers together and he pays them, starting with the workers who work the least amount of time, the 5 p.m. employed, ending with the worker who ended uh, his day. It started at 9 a.m. and did the full work day. And the landowner, when the worker hired at 9 a.m. and who was involved in the backbreaking work under the scorching heat, he finally sees what's going on in front of him and he's totaling it up. Wait, hold on, that's the same amount and he gets to me and wait you're only offering me the same amount as everybody else even though I worked all day and those people worked less than I did he begins to grumble by the way you know someone who grumbles right it's someone who feels they're entitled to something you can't grumble without feeling entitled first so this man at 9 a.m. is entitled he begins to grumble And the landowner replies with these questions. He says, it might be an unfair. Didn't I agree to pay you this? Didn't we talk about this this morning? I told you I'd give you this amount. I'm giving you this amount. What's the deal? He gets a little snarky. He says, take your money and go. Get out of here. You're done. Move on. He says, I have the right to pay my workers whatever I want to. And I paid you fairly, didn't I? He says, then he asked these two questions. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my own money? And then he asked the one that I still get goosebumps no matter how many times I read it. He said, or are you envious because I'm generous? Could there be a better line that describes Jonah than that? Jonah is envious because God is being way more generous than he thinks God should be. Jonah believes as a good Israelite, he was hired at 9 (laughs) a.m. He believes he's doing God's work, serving in the scorching heat. He deserves more because he's done more. He's earned it. And in his mind, Nineveh was hired at 5 p.m. At the last minute. And it ain't fair for Jonah. They didn't even earn it like he did. Jonah's not only acting like the 9 a.m. worker in the story that Jesus tells in Matthew 20, he's also acting like the story we keep referring back to in the prodigal son. He keeps acting like the older brother. I earned this. I deserve this. Why are you being gracious to someone who doesn't deserve it? Jonah is envious because God is being generous. And Jonah teaches us bluntly that God is not calling any of us to moralism. And this is hard for some of us who've grown up in churches that actually think that's the point. Renew, we are not a church that idolizes moralism. Moralism reeks with pride. It's what the Pharisees struggled with. What's one of the verbs always associated with the Pharisees? They grumbled and complained. They were entitled to something they believed. They did all the right religious activities on the outside, but it made no difference on the, on the inside of who they were. In fact, it made things worse. In chapter 1, and this is really important, renew. we've got to grasp this in chapters 2 and 3. In chapter 1 of Jonah, Jonah was irreligious. He rebelled against God. But in chapters 2 and 3, Jonah was religious. He thought God owed him. Irreligion says, I don't need God. I can live my life on my own terms. I don't need him. But religion says, God must love me more than others just because of how good I am. God needs me. Religion is everywhere, even if it's subtle. And it comes out in things that we may not say, but we will feel like, God must love me just a little bit more because I prayed a little bit longer this week. God must love me a little bit less this week because I said those few words. Or I looked at that website. Isn't God so lucky to have me on the team? At least I'm not as bad as that person. God could never fully love me because of the things I've done. I'm sure God loves me because of the things I've done. You see how this creeps into our lives? It's not just the irreligious that need Jesus. It's the religious that need him too. And that's what Jonah helps us understand. Because for many of us, if we've grown up in church, like I have, we begin to fall into the trap, not of irreligion, but of religion. And it's ever so sneaky, and it's ever so subtle, and it's incredibly dangerous. Because both irreligion and religion are enemies of the gospel. Neither one will save us from ourselves. Neither one. That's why the gospel and the good news of Jesus is so important for us at our church. Because we have to realize it saves two groups of people. Those that know they don't have their stuff together. And those that think they have their stuff together and we've got to be people who are willing to come to grips with the fact that the moment we say well look at how good i am is the very moment we actually need the gospel more than any other time in our lives that's where repentance is needed that's where we still have a growth uh, a, a, a growth period of time in our lives to become more like jesus and understand the scandalously gracious god As Doug and Jeanette were talking earlier, God is a missionary God who wants all of creation to experience the saving, forgiving, redeeming work of Jesus Christ, and that includes us. And that's why we say, as Doug said, we are missionaries cleverly disguised as good neighbors, but we can never be that until we understand the scandalously gracious character of this missionary God. I love this book of Jonah and I hate it because every time it rips me open in my heart in some new way. Again, we've said this scripture is both a window and a mirror. So let me summarize chapters two and three of Jonah. Here's the window. Jonah is jolted by the reality of a scandalously gracious God and he's angry about it because it's not who he thinks God should be. But the mirror is we need to be jolted by the reality of a scandalously gracious God and at times repent of our anger because it's not who we think God should be either. So you'll have to come back to the next gathering in two weeks and hear more. But I'll tip my hand and say this. I actually believe that Jonah 4 is even more dramatic than the first three chapters. So I want to encourage you, don't don't miss that and lean in with your house church but I want you to go back to your index cards. Now maybe as you're hearing this, and you don't have to share your enemies, but maybe you're recognizing through this, maybe there are a few more enemies now than when you first wrote them down. Maybe some came to mind during the time. But I want to allow a couple of minutes for the other side of the card of what are those questions or those thoughts? Where was their clarity? How are you processing this? What do we need to process as a church? And so we're going to uh, have these questions up here and uh, I'll repeat what you say just to make sure that we all hear it. But uh, I, I want to, what did you write down? What came to mind? What are you still wrestling with? Are there connections made? Just stand up and say it loud and I'll repeat it as well. So go ahead and stand up. Go ahead and stand up. I was just going to say, I want to hear more about Jonah's obedience. Huh? Jonah's obedience? Yes. In what way?
2: Uh, I'm still focused on the fish. With obedience.
0: Still focused on the fish? Yes. Yeah, huh. So you want, to, you want to understand and unpack a little bit more about obedience? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because I often wonder about that in my own life. What does it mean to be yeah. yeah, yeah, great. I think when it comes to obedience, when we try to say, what honors God's heart? How do we know what obedience, when it's good and when it's unhealthy, is always back to the question of, what's my motive? What is my motive? Remember, the older son in the prodigal son story was completely obedient. He did everything he was supposed to do. That's what made him so upset. But he had the angry, condescending, bad motive. Look at how great I am, obedience to the Father. That's why it's the prodigal. Remember, prodigal means waster, squanderer. He squandered the love of his father that was right under his own house. He's the prodigal, not the younger one, right? So if I'm able to then be obedient to God to say, God, because of how great you are, because of how painstakingly patient you are, scandalously gracious you are, I want to serve you. I want to be obedient. And I'm going to need you, God, to help me be more obedient. But if it's out of, well, I'm doing it because I'm supposed to do it, legalism, or I'm doing it because look at how great I am, moralism, arrogance, that's the very thing. The Pharisees, by the way, you know, I've shared this story before when I lived in Israel about the Pharisee brothers from Canada, Dov and Moshe, who became good friends, and ran a shop that I would visit regularly. You will never find a more moral person in your life than Dov and Moshe. They are the most amazing people I've ever met. It makes me wonder, I know everyone sins, but if there's ever a question I've ever wondered is did Dove and Moshe, have they ever sinned? I mean, their life is perfect, at least as they describe it to me, and what they do and how they interact with. The Pharisees in the first century, when Jesus is interacting with them, there would be nothing that we could throw stones at their character and say, yeah, but what about that? Nothing. They lived right. In fact, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, right? And he says, what should I do to inherit the kingdom of God? There's the the problem is the question. What should I do? How do I prove that I'm worthy of being saved? And Jesus is just setting him up. He says, well, you you know, keep the commands. He's like, oh, I've kept everything since I was a child. He said, since my bar mitzvah, When I was 12 and then became a man, since I covenanted with the bar mitzvah, I've not done anything wrong. Woo! Obedient. But Jesus says, you're missing the point. Go sell all of your stuff. Give it to the poor and follow me. Because he knew if the motive is built on the right things, that whole house would crumble, and it did. Does that make sense at all? that in terms of obedience. What's my motive? All right? I want my kids to be obedient because Dad says so, but I really want them to say, Dad loves me and trusts me, and even though I don't respect it and get it, I know he has my best interest in mind, so that's why I'll do it. So even in our parenting this comes in. It's kind of scary, because it's easier and more controlling for me to say, Dad said it, that's why you do it. But really, I want him to say, to be wise. I want to honor my dad. I know my dad wants to honor Jesus and other people. And so if dad says this, then I want to trust my dad. And I don't do that very well all the time. Megan can tell you. I don't. I have a tendency to just say, do it because I told you. And that's where I still need redemption in my own parenting. So... Anyway, yeah. Anybody else? Thanks, Ken. Yeah. Anybody else in terms of thoughts or questions or? Th- yeah. Yeah. Lindsay, what stuck out to you? I did question before
2: today, but I really um, was intrigued by how it kind of just repented huh. uh, without expectation of, say, you were to say, oh, like like God saving your city, and it wasn't really King said, "Maybe God will see us and change His mind," and I, I feel like a lot mm. of times, you know, we come to God and expect Him. To to save us and i wish we had more of that posture well, huh. just repenting
0: for the sake of repenting not for the sake of yeah yeah for like our benefits right yeah i mean nineveh's yeah just to repeat it for if you didn't hear it uh, Lindsay was saying she hadn't noticed nineveh's uh repentance being so fully formed even though they only had a few words even before the king was fully convinced that god would change his mind just repentance for the sake of repentance. That's good. That's a great insight. Anybody else have that insight? Anybody else notice that? Or anybody else moved by Nineveh's response? Pretty amazing. So yeah, great. Thanks, Lindsay. How about one or two more? What's some of the thoughts that you had. How's this different than your VBS experience? <laughs> what else? Yes, Leah. Yes. Um, so the question Yes. Huh. Um, uh, well, VBS,
1: what I remember is after Jonah was vomited out,
0: that was it. Huh. So yes, yes. I
1: like, this is a miracle. He like, lived in this whale for three days. And he's vomited out still alive.
0: Yeah. Done Great. That's exactly right. My, anybody's VBS teach you what happened after he's vomited? Wow, seriously. No, no, no. Oh, 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 wow. <laughs> I mean, maybe, I just, and I think, Joel, you and I were talking about this earlier, right? Like, you said, I think Jonah ends at Jonah 2.10 or something, for most people's understanding. We don't even know the last two chapters. That's why this book is so good, and sometimes the best passages to teach on are the Vacation Bible School passages, because we think we know it, we sort of gloss over it, like, like Noah's Ark is an unbelievably amazing and complex and difficult story if we're willing to sit with it, but we only just hearken back to our sentimental VBS days. Yes, great insight, Leah, and that, yeah, that's totally what Joel and I were talking about a few weeks ago. Good, good. How about one or two more? Any other observations? Connecting some dots. Yes, Dave. Just the Ninevites were being asked to...
2: And violence. Yeah.
0: think that's often overlooked in our Christian paradise, where we are in Jesus, when it comes to violence, yeah, just a second, Michael. For those of you who didn't hear, just Nineveh and their violence and repentance in the midst of that. And what does it mean of us and our enemies and how we think we want to respond that way? I know we have some people with Anabaptist backgrounds that say, of course, yeah, we're not supposed to do that. Others of us may have grown up in places where maybe even churches have told us, well, if there are enemies, we just take them out. That's a hard thing because we just see this God, especially Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, right? It's hard to rationalize violence against our enemies as we see in Scripture. Especially Jesus with His new redemptive message. You've heard it said, when someone's violent with you, you be violent back. He said, no, no, i got a whole new way of thinking in the kingdom, in the rule and the reign of God. When rule, the rule and the reign of God are present, the violence is not a part of our vocabulary. And that's hard, because then we get all practical. What about if someone broke in my house? And what if someone bombed us? And we've got to really wrestle with that hard, so yes, Michael, last one, Michael Phelps. What's that?
2: You already
0: Okay, okay, yeah. Yeah, good. All right. Well, this is a good discussion. I want us to continue to keep doing this. We're going to pause right now from our discussion. I want you to pull your cards back out um, if you have those. Again, you don't have to turn those in. This is just for you and your own growth. And, And you're going to have some opportunities in House Church this week to lean in even more with Jonah. There's a lot from my notes, just for the sake of time, I cut out. So, I'm going to dump that all into the going further document given to your house church shepherds to talk about it more so we don't just lose it, um, but it's used there. So, a lot of new content that you'll uh, get on this idea of of Jonah chapter 2 and 3. But here's what I want us to do we're going to have a time of prayer, and I want you to look over the list that you made of your enemies. Because if we're followers of Jesus, Jesus said one of the things that we are called to do, one of the commands if we want to take being a follower of Jesus seriously is to pray for our enemies. That's one way we follow Jesus is to do what he says, and he says to do this. So we're going to do that. Here's what I don't mean. Because here's how we sometimes like to pray for our enemies. God, I pray they fail at work. I pray they're exposed. I pray they lose their job. I pray they're pray there's harm on their family. You I know, pray the IRS audits them. Like, agree? we just pray all these things, right? But Jesus actually tells us to pray in certain ways that scares us a little bit, that may even perturb us to the point of becoming the older brother in the prodigal son story or the 9 a.m. vineyard worker, where we pray things like, Lord, I pray that you would bless my boss's family Lord, I pray for blessing on that country. I pray for that person who abused me. I pray for that person who has said this in that political party or this political party. I think one of the best things that we can do in a counter, to be countercultural for Jesus in our world is to humanize the other. And one of the ways we humanize the other is to pray for those people that we want, or maybe the world wants to have violence done to them. This is where Jonah goes from a really fun story to like, this is really hard. Because we get a chance to actually lean in and learn from Jonah and pray in this way. By the way, I mentioned this two weeks ago in terms of where Nineveh is, but I'm not sure I made the connection fully. Do you remember the old ruins of Nineveh, which you can visit today, if you can get in the country, is in Iraq. It's across the river from Mosul, Iraq. And if you know anything about ISIS, you know that one of the hubs of ISIS... Is Mosul, Iraq? Maybe some of you wrote down ISIS. Guess what? You're going to pray for modern-day Ninevites. Literal Ninevites. In the same geographic area that Jonah refused to go to. So I just I know I know one house church wrestled with this question this week. If God called you to go to Mosul, Iraq and to be a missionary to ISIS, would you go or not? Be careful. Be careful how you answer. Because we might be reading your autobiography. Could God actually love ISIS enough to send you to go talk about Jesus to them? Or would you say, I'm out? Bomb those idiots. See where this gets a little real? You see how quiet the room is now? There's a reason because we're taking Jonah out of VBS and putting it in 2016. This is hard. This is hard. And it's supposed to be hard. Because when we do hard things, that's when significant things happen. So I'm going to stop talking. I'm really keyed up and passionate about this, so I'm going to stop talking. And I'm just going to allow a few minutes for us to just pray to pray blessing where there's been hurt, to pray for redemption where there's been pain. Maybe there's forgiveness that you need to extend to them, whoever they or them or those people might be. So do that for a few moments. And if you want to journal, if you want to write on your card, if you want to just pray silently, if you want to kneel, you can do that. And Then I will, I will pray for us. God, for some of us, this may be one of the hardest things that we've done over the last few months. Because the world in which we live says if someone's done harm to us, we we will do and should do harm to them, or we should hold a grudge, and yet you invite us into freedom. It says we not only forgive them and let it go, but we also bless those who persecute us. We pray for our enemies. We pray blessing on them. And for some of us who maybe have been abused, some of us who have been taken advantage of, who have experienced, whether it's physical or sexual or emotional or verbal abuse, it's left scars on our lives, maybe even physical scars, and it's left shrapnel deeply embedded in our hearts. And this is hard, God. The Lord, in some ways, it's kind of burning off maybe some pride or arrogance that can easily creep in and can easily show us well I'm, I'm better because I didn't do what they did God help us to understand grace well even to the point of saying we were vile we have been involved in things that made we made us to be enemies of you God And you were gracious enough to love us, your enemies, in our sin, to actually befriend you. It wasn't our move. It was yours. We love because he first loved us. You loved us first in that. And Lord, if we keep it all to ourselves, we're doing nothing more than being a bucket because the grace that's flowed into us stays there. But as we've talked here many times we're called to be a pipe that what flows into us flows out of us to other people and so we who are enemies of you who've been made right we want to actually take on that scandalously gracious character of our god and turn around and show grace to enemies that don't deserve it because we didn't deserve your grace either God, I know there have been tears. I know there have been the voices inside of our heads during this time saying, they don't deserve it, they don't need it. I can't do this. I'm not ready for this. God, would you give us grace enough to be able to pray for our enemies, to forgive our enemies, to pray legitimate blessing on our enemies? And so, God, we really want you to hear our prayers and respond and do something in such a way that blesses our enemies, even if we have to grit our teeth. May we come to the point of smiling in gratitude because we realize we are like Jonah and we need grace from you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.